The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From time to time we take a little detour from our regular study in the book of John to address in a little more detail a subject that arises in the text as we're moving through, and today is one of those times. This morning we are pausing and taking a topical look at the subject of heaven. Topical look means that I'm going to preach on the subject of the topic of heaven and not work through any particular text, so it may feel a little different. I'm going to hop around a little bit and kind of cover some broader ideas rather than be focused on one particular passage. Last week in John 14, in our usual moving through the book, we saw Jesus preparing his disciples for what was to come, his cross and his departure from them. He began to talk about those things, and his disciples were just starting to come to grips with them. The idea that Jesus is leaving, he's going to leave them alone, they're starting to get that, and they're a little bit afraid. Anxiety is beginning to grow in them. Jesus is leaving. He tries to encourage them. He speaks into their experience and calls them to transfer their trust from the things in the world that they're leaning on to transfer their trust over to him. Be not troubled, but instead trust. That was last week. But in that passage, as I promised last week, I'm going to return to verses 2 and 3 to address the subject of heaven. Give a little more detail to that there. So let me read those two verses of John 14, verses 2 and 3, to kind of re-familiarize yourselves, ourselves with what Jesus says there. This is John 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Talked about this last week. The Father's house has many rooms. He's not saying that it's a dormitory or something like that. He's saying that there's plenty of room there for you. Plenty of space. If it wasn't, I wouldn't say that there is. That I'm going there. And I'm going to come back to get you. We talked further about he's going to take them to be where he is. And then a little further on, where the Father is. The essence of heaven then, we said, was where God is. Where God the Son is and God the Father is. God the Spirit as well. Heaven, the place prepared for you by the cross. That's my subject. Before I launch into that, I need to give a couple of introductory remarks. Part of the title of the sermon, you'll notice if you looked in the bulletin, is Towards a Theology of Heaven. That word towards is my confession. There is a lot that is unknown about heaven. And there is a lot that is unknown by me about heaven. So this is my confession that what I'm saying this morning is moving us towards something. It is not an expert speaking definitively. This is not the final word on heaven. Yet what I say is going to be true, I think, proven from the scriptures. And so I hope to take it and move you towards thinking about something. Move you a little further down the path. Perhaps you'll find some of this new or even provocative. I hope it is. I hope it kind of makes you think in a little bit different way. And I encourage you, search the scriptures to see if what I say is true. But as you do that, please be aware that as one book I read in this subject put it, the statement, I've never heard that before, 
is not a good argument as to why it's not, tr- why it's not true. Okay? Beware of that. I've never heard it before. It might just mean that you haven't heard it before. You need to go look into the Bible and see if what I'm going to say this morning is in fact true. Sift through it. Dialogue with me about it. That's good. Great. I hope you do that. Move towards a better understanding. A better understanding of what lies ahead for you if you are a believer. We talked about this last week as well, but I need to mention this again because it is so critical. Please understand that everything that I'm going to say here this morning is limited in its application. It is limited to some people. Jesus himself made this clear in John 14, verse 6. He said there, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is all limited in application to those who come to it in Christ, through Christ. The glorious news, the the great news, I can't overemphasize this, the great and glorious news is that there is a way for sinful people like us to close with and have relationship with and come to God who is holy, holy, holy. There's a way that is amazing. The two of us should be separated forever, but there's a way. That's good news, but the, the hard news is that there is one way. I am the way, Jesus said. No one comes except through me. Only by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone, not faith in Christ plus faith faith in the stuff that I do. That's not faith in Christ. It's a combination. Faith in Christ alone makes all that I'm going to say here applicable to you. I'm going to speak this morning as if I'm talking to Christians, but I know some here aren't. And I pray that what you see here will entice you It'll look marvelous to you. It'll draw you. Pray that happens this morning. So we're focusing on heaven, the final destiny of the Christian, and emphasize final destiny, because what I'm talking about this morning is what comes after Christ's return, after the judgment, for eternity. Notice that's what Jesus is emphasizing also. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I will come back and get you and take you to be where, where I am. Coming back, this is after the return of Christ. So we're talking about the very end, the place where we all end up in eternity, if you're a believer. Also called the new heaven and the new earth, or heaven for short. A place prepared for you. My focus. But why? I mean, if we're going to end up there anyway, why bother talking about it? If it's the end, why examine it? Well, have you ever heard the old saying, That guy is so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. Ever heard that saying? I shared that in a sermon some time back, actually. He's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. Meaning this guy has his head just up in the clouds, he's always thinking about religious stuff, and he can't ever manage to get down here and focus on anything useful. Common accusation of religious people. Well, in fact, John, Paul, pardon me, Paul takes that saying and turns it on its head in Colossians chapter 3. He, in essence, says that most of us live so earthly-minded we're of no earthly good. Get the difference there. What the earth needs, what the world needs, is the world needs people who are being changed into more and more righteousness, that are growing in righteousness, that are becoming like Christ and displaying love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Needs people like that and people then who will help other people become like that. That's what the world needs to be changed by. And that does not happen in us as we are focused on the world. We're too worldly-minded that happens in us as our gaze is lifted. That's what, that's what Paul elaborates on in Colossians 3. He tells us, commands Christians to set your minds and set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, where your life is hidden with him. And then after that, then he goes on to talk about how to fight against sin. Within yourself. And influence society around you. We need to have a perspective that sees something greater and higher. A mind that's set on the things above will not sell those things for cheap trinkets here. Will not be persuaded by weak offers of pleasure here at the expense of those things there. If you're captured by this, it changes how you look at things down here, how you live down here. We need to see that. We need to see heaven. But we do a really bad job of that. We are very weak in the Christian community by and large, very weak in talking about heaven and explaining heaven and casting a compelling vision for heaven. Who actually wants to sing in a choir for billions and billions of years? Shirley raised her hand. <laughs> I don't. I suspect that even Shirley and others who like to sing in choirs here after a billion years or so would kind of like to do something else, just for a little variety. And by variety, I don't mean a change in key or a change in song, something else. And streets of gold, who cares? I mean, we might show up there if the streets actually are literally made of gold. I doubt they are, but we might say, wow. And then, shortly after that, realize that does nothing for me in here. Harp music? I don't like the harp. <laughs> I don't. And what's it, what is it like to float on a cloud forever? What is that? We have a picture in one of our kids' Bibles of angels wearing sandals, floating in clouds. Think about that for a second. Why do you need to wear sandals if you are floating in clouds? <laughs> That's heaven for us. That's not compelling, for me at least. On the other hand, hell is not compelling either. Hell is awful. It's the epitome of pain and sorrow and loss and misery. It's terror. Forever and ever and ever and ever. I do not want to go there. And then I hold up the clouds and the harp music and the choir and, and I weigh the things in the balance and really, I kind of want to stay here. Going there seems like being locked in a white room singing along to Muzak forever. I don't want to do that either. I look around here, maybe you resonate with this, I look around here and Sure, there's sorrow and pain and ravages of sin here, but there's also beauty. There's the beauty of the sun setting against the mountainside. I saw this last night and just sat and wondered at it. There's the challenge here of creating music and art 
in computer programs and gardens and buildings. There's the sweetness of rest after a day's work when your muscles are tired and it just feels good to sit down. There's the thrill of exploration and adventure in a canyon. There's the, the competition and camaraderie of sports. There's the, the wonder of sweet and, and tasty food. There's intimacy and relationships that are so nourishing. On and on and on. All of them are holy pleasures. And the world is full of them here. Tainted by sin? Absolutely. But good too. That's part of our world here. And we, the redeemed of the Lord, are supposed to trade that in for the, the disembodied soul floating on the clouds singing in a choir? No. Thank God, no. Literally. Heaven is much better than that. We're going to think about four realities of heaven this morning. One is introductory, and then three flow out of that. I hope that together they may encourage you that the place God has prepared for you is glorious. So think about it all the time. The place God has prepared for you is stupendous. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's glorious. It's fun. It's exciting. It's satisfying. It's glorious. So think about it. Set your mind on things above. Think about it all the time. And may that conviction of heaven that is awesome increase your ability then to fight against sin and the cheap things offered to you down here. Four realities. Let's start with the first one. This is the introductory one, and while it may seem obvious, I think there's something kind of helpful here, so stick with me. First reality, heaven is the end of God's eternal plan. Now you might say, well, of course it is, it's the end. Heaven is the end of God's eternal plan, not just in that it's the last step, but that it's the goal. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the only God who ever has been ever anywhere at all, has always existed, and at one point he decided to create. And what he did was he created something and has been moving it since then towards a goal, heaven. Let me put it in the words of Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. You might remember this from when we were in Ephesians some time back. You could take this from other places, but Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, God makes known to us, Christians, that is, makes known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose in Christ. What he's saying there is, God has always had a purpose and a will. But it was a mystery, because it was hidden. Nobody understood Christ. Nobody understood what Christ was about, what he was going to do, who he was going to be, how things were all going to work out. It was a mystery hidden. But now, God has made that known to us in the scriptures by the Spirit. Moving on to the next verse. His plan, here's what the the will, the purpose was, his plan for the fullness of time, at the end, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite, to bring these realms, all things in heaven and on earth, all of them together under Christ, to bring them to heal under Christ, if you remember that from back then. Mystery, hidden. Nobody understood who the Christ was, what he was going to do. But what's been revealed now is that God's end, God's goal is to bring all of this stuff 
together under Christ's authority. That's what he's been working towards. It's always been to display God the Son and then bring it, bring all the creation under his authority. And that finally comes to a head in Revelation chapter 21. Do turn to this chapter. We're going to skim through it and look at some of the details in Revelation 21. It's going to be a quick pass. I'm going to skip a number of things, but I'm going to touch on some high points. And as you turn there, please note that this chapter, 21, is after the stuff that we usually argue about in eschatology. That stuff that can all be a little confusing as to who goes when, where, and when, he, when Christ comes back, and what happens in the millennium, all that's behind us in chapter 21. This is the eternal state, what happens for eternity. Christ has come back in chapter 20, the millennium's happened, the final judgment has happened at the end of chapter 20, and then we come to chapter 21, verse 1. The goal, heaven and earth united under Christ, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and earth, the first heaven and earth, had passed away and the sea was no more. The great judgment at the end of chapter 20 has burned over everything that was created. It's burned over, it's cleansed it, it's destroyed it, like a forest fire burns over the whole area, like a house burned all the way down to the foundation. You can read about this in other places, Second Peter chapter 3, for instance, you can come to the precept study and learn about that. The old has been judged and destroyed, and the new has come now, and John sees it. And he also sees, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And God says, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Often, forecast, often look forward to, promise in the Old Testament, finally comes about. Emmanuel, God with us in a profound way. Out of, the, out of the heavens comes the new Jerusalem. It comes down and is joined, and now God says, now we're together. The dwelling place of God and man is the same place now. Verse 10, he sees it again. John's carried away to a great high mountain and shown the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God as its radiance. And in that place, now skipping down a bit to verses 22 and 23, there's a lot of describing in the middle there what that place is like, what happens there. But verse 22 and 23, there's no temple there. Because God and the Lamb are the temple. The whole thing is a temple. There's no sun there because God and the Lamb shine everywhere in that place. Here you have these two realms joined and God and the Lamb run throughout it. I don't know if that means it's a, a literal shining of light. I, I tend to think it's more metaphorical, but the point is that he's everywhere, shining all around. Now, obviously, there's a bunch I skipped over there in the middle, and probably a, a thousand questions arise in your mind. What about this, and what about that, and how does that work? But don't miss the main point here. We could talk about how high the walls are. Are they literal walls? What do the gates look like? All those things. But the point is, this has happened. And when this happens, now God dwells with people. It's finally come about. 
The next chapter, chapter 22, verse 4, the face of God is seen. Finally, they worship Him face to face. These two realms have closed tangibly, concretely. I want you to see this to get this main idea that heaven is the end of God's eternal plan. It's the goal that God and man would be together in the same place. You realize back in the garden, there are several things here that loop back to the prophets and all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But back in the Garden of Eden, when God walked with people in the pool of the day, there were still two realms. God was a visitor. God stopped by the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. But that wasn't his final intention. His final intention, mysteriously hidden through all of past time, was to bring everything together under Christ and to join these two realms and to have there no longer be separate places, but one place. God and man together. What we see there then is the glory of God face to face when we live with Him in the same place. And we see more of Him than Adam and Eve ever saw, which is why He wanted to improve on that. This is like the garden revisited, but the garden on steroids, if you will. It's, it's all pumped up. It's better than then. What we see of God is more than they saw then. How's that? They hadn't fallen into sin yet. They had no understanding of, of how fierce the justice of God was and how fierce his love was. They didn't know the lamb. There was no need for one. They saw God glorious. Sure, we see God more glorious because we see a redeeming God. God and the Lamb are the temple. God and the Lamb shine throughout. We see the Lamb. We see more of God there when these two realms are joined together. So the first introductory reality about heaven is that God has been moving towards it. He kind of forecast it in Genesis. Then you could take Ephesians as I did and say, he prophesied it again. And here in Revelation 21, he's brought it about. This is his goal, that we would be united in the same place. Why this is introductory, why it's kind of foundational, is that from that then you can think a little bit, you can say, if God's been working towards that, then what he's done along the way should give me clues to it. If it's always been his intention to end up here, then I know that we didn't start off on track one, then Satan did something and God said, oh, that's... Man, that's ruined. Now I need to start something else. It's always been his plan. He's been working it throughout the ages. So, if I want to ask the question, which I'm going to do here, what's heaven like exactly? I can look back down the plan, down the line, and I can find clues. There's continuity between what God did, what he's doing, and what he will do. Continuity. I'm sure I opened up a Pandora's box in Revelation 21. You got a lot of questions. That's fine. Great. Ask me later, please. I'm going to move on, though, to the next three realities that flow out of this idea that God has been working towards this end goal. Here's the second reality. There's continuity between the structure of this earth 
and the next earth. This world and the next world. There's continuity in structure. Right on the surface, the terminology that we saw should imply this. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. It's using words that we already know and tacking new on the beginning. The idea is that there's some kind of continuity between what you know and what will be. If I said, I got a new watch to replace my old watch because it was broken, you're thinking something. You're thinking about a watch. It's not the same watch, not the exact same watch, but there's a continuity in what it is. If I actually meant I bought an automobile, I've just misled you. God's not misleading you. There's a continuity between new earth, old earth, between new heaven, old heaven, or current heaven, you might say. Continuity there. Point is, when we read new heaven and new earth, we should think, this earth is like the new earth. Not like Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching. This is, this is not a Jehovah's Witness teaching. If you are familiar with them at all, but I want to make clear that they're teaching that it's the same place. There's a lot of different things there, but I'm saying something different than that right now. I need to clarify that, see me later. But there's continuity between these two. And that makes sense when you read Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you would. While you're turning there, the context is that Paul is teaching Christians that now that you've believed, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit lives in you, and he's helping you to fight against sin. He's testifying that you actually are a, a child of God. Later in the chapter, he's going to say that the Spirit helps you pray. Well, here in the middle of the chapter, verse 18, Romans 8, 18, he writes, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed the stuff in the future. What's going on right now is not worth comparing to what's going to happen in the future. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, that's the creation minus people, it's all the other stuff that's been created, waits with eager longing for the resurrection of believers in the age to come. Why is that? Verse 20, because it was previously subjected to futility in expectation that one day it would be set free again from the bondage to decay and would be a participant in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Follow what he's saying there. One time in the past, you can look back into Genesis and find that, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, the creation was a really good place ruled over by good people for a very little while. And then Genesis 3 happens, the fall happens, and all the creation is subjected to decay. It's cursed. It suffers. It's plagued by our very presence, the fact that we're not good stewards anymore. It's plagued by what we do to the land. Strip mining and exploitation and slaughter of animals. I mean, how many buffalo live in the United States these days? Think the buffalo have been subjected to decay? Yes, millions and billions of them killed by us. The creation subjected, but not permanently, in hope, in expectation that one day it would be liberated. 
The creation is not destined to be permanently eliminated. It's destined to be liberated, renewed, set free, brought back to life, if you will. It's the earth dying and resurrected. When? When the people who were died have been resurrected. There's a time coming for the creation also when it's going to come back to life. A new earth liberated. We should think about that. When we talk about the world passing away, when it talks about it being destroyed, 2 Peter 3, it's not destroyed forever. It will be liberated after the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, are also themselves resurrected. If you think about it, it makes sense that we would have a physical realm because we're going to have physical bodies. Spend less time on this because you're probably familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 15. What happens to us when we're resurrected? Are we disembodied souls? No, we have bodies like Christ. When Christ was resurrected, he had a body. He ate. He walked around. Was it different? Yes, it was different. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Seed and plant are not the same, but there's a continuity. If you have a plant like a, an acorn, it leads to a certain kind of tree. Acorns are, are oak trees, not apple trees, not corn. An acorn does not yield a squirrel. There's a continuity there. We have bodies. We die. We're resurrected with bodies. Exactly the same? No. But similar. Physical bodies like Christ's. What's that going to look like? I don't exactly know. Am, am I, is my physical body going to look like this or like I'm going to look in 10 years or like I looked 10 years ago? I don't know. It doesn't say. But I'm going to have one. Am I going to have the marks of this world on my body? Scars and, and whatnot. Well, maybe Jesus did. He could show the scars. He could display them. Am I going to be debilitated, though, by what's happened in this world? No. Jesus' mortal wounds did not inhibit him from walking around and living and eating. You should think about that. That should be good news to you. If you have trouble walking now, you're not going to have trouble walking then. Walk with a cane now. Eyesight's not so good. You won't suffer the debilitations of this life. You will have a new body. Like this one, but better. So banish the idea from your mind that you will be a forever disembodied soul floating on a cloud. That's not the case. There is a new earth joined to the new heaven, the eternal state, they call it heaven for short, the resurrected creation with resurrected people and a resurrected Lord in it. A place for you. A place for you. I find that to be mind-boggling. And actually kind of exhilarating, too, when I think about this. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's quite obviously true. Creation's going to come back. We're going to come back. And when you ponder the ramifications of this, this gets kind of interesting, I think. Have you ever wrestled with this tension in your heart? 
mentioned this a little bit earlier, I guess. My heart throbs with joy as I watch the sunset, maybe in this particular grove of trees here. Think of some idyllic setting you've been in in the mountains, this meadow here. I watch the sun setting in it. It's perfect. I watch the bee hopping from flower to flower to flower. I hear the, the brook kind of bubbling in the background. See some animals playing over there. It's gorgeous. Birds flying, hopping from tree to tree. The leaves just gently twisting in the wind. It's wonderful. And I have to trade that in for this empty heaven? That's, that's not going to be eliminated. It will be eliminated, and then it will be resurrected even better than before. That same place, think of that without curse. The bee, it's never going to sting you. Play with it. The mountain lion that you don't see over there in the thicket, she's no danger to you. The stream, you're never going to drown in it, neither are your kids. Go ahead and drink it. You're not going to catch any disease from it. In fact, please do drink it. You've never tasted water like that. And if the day runs out and it sunsets a little earlier than you'd want it to, come back tomorrow. There'll be plenty of time. And bring your friends. Bring Martin Luther, if you like. I want to. Some questions I would like to ask him and maybe have a drink with him or something. <laughs> bring your friends. Bring your grandmother, who was a believer and died before you. Bring your son, who died earlier than you'd wished. They'll be there with you in a marvelous place. Maybe, though, maybe the meadow's not quite the thing for you. Maybe you'd prefer to go to the heart of a thriving metropolis without any crime, though. No accidents, no angry people, but just full of energy. It's alive. Human creativity running through it everywhere. Maybe that's where you'd rather go. Wherever you go, though, don't linger too long because you have a part to play in that human energy there in that metropolis. You have work to do in this new place. Moves us towards our third reality. The second reality is that there's a continuity in the structure. There is a place, a new earth, where we with new bodies live. And we interact with each other. Third reality is about the continuity between the new earth and the present earth in the area of work. There's a continuity in the activity of heaven. Revelation 22, verse 5, right after the part where we saw that we see God and worship him face to face, 22, verse 5 says, and they shall reign forever and ever. And in the context, they is clearly us, believers. Believers reign forever and ever. Now, lots of other places say that God reigns forever and ever. That's true, too. We reign with him. This is a perfect fit with the first thing that he told us back in Genesis. What did God say when he first made people? Remember verse, chapter 1, verse 28? This is in the first chapter of the Bible. Made people and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, 
and the birds and every living thing that's on the earth. And then chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to work it. This is before the fall. Back before the fall, work without toil, without frustration, without monotonous boredom and uselessness and futility and pain. Work. Subduing the earth. Exercising dominion over it. Gathering things together. Putting separated elements into holes and then using them for the betterment of all the creation. God established people to do that with his creation. Back before the fall. He gave us minds and bodies with muscles so as to be able to think and plan and organize and then labor. That was his design. Now, it's twisted in the fall, sure, but it's going to be restored in heaven. This line of thought is sometimes called the cultural mandate. A mandate, a command or an order. God mandated people to build culture. He didn't make Adam a wanderer or nomad and just wander around and like pluck stuff off of trees and eat it whenever you feel like it. He said, be here, stay here, have kids, fill the earth with worshipers, and subdue it. Get organized, put stuff together, rule, reign. Fast forward to the last page of the Bible, and they shall reign forever and ever. Is it not what Jesus hinted at in the parable of the talents? You, take five cities, reign over them. You, take ten cities, reign over them. We have work to do, just like we've always had work to do. It all gets twisted here now. Families are broken and work is hard. But it wasn't that way originally, and it won't be that way at the end. The subduing of and the reigning over the earth... We're going to have marvelous resources with which to do that. Minds, unlimited by the fall. Still finite, we're not going to be, be all-knowing, only God is, but we won't have the limitations of the fall. Bodies that don't have limitations of the fall. And the actual resources we'll be able to use, the things we'll take into our hands. There's another thread here in the Bible. Some of the stuff that I skipped over in Revelation 21, you might see there. The kings and the nations bring into this new city their glory, their honor. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 60. In those places in Isaiah, Isaiah is using the language of plunder and tribute. You know what plunder and tribute is? When a country conquered another country, they essentially said, everything that you guys have that's good, we're going to take. And then... Year after year after year, you have to pay us more stuff to keep us from totally annihilating you. Tribute. What Isaiah is saying is that when God conquers everything, he plunders all the wealth of the nations and takes it into his own camp. Just like kings always did. That's what heaven's like. Everything that has been made that is good God takes it into his own realm. It's kind of like Jesus says, thank you. I'll have that now. You made that by my grace, my common grace given to people that lets them think and work and put things together, use resources. You made that by my grace and you used it against me. I've judged you for that now, but I'm not going to throw that away. I'm going to take that 
into my kingdom and my people are going to use it for good. The nations bring in their glory. The kings bring in their wealth. Everything that we have put together as a society, from the simplest cloth, that's a creation. People came up with that in their minds. If we take this from this plant and we knit it together, we can make a fiber and we can make a piece of cloth onto a simple bag. You know, if we stitch two of these together around the edges, now we can make a bag. We can carry stuff. That's helpful. Onto, if we cut this wood this way and melt this metal this way, we can make a metal plow and grow crops. That's a good thing. Onto electricity and television and the internet. All of those things used for evil here, sure. Can they be used for good? Absolutely. I think, here I'm stepping a little bit beyond the text, doesn't say this, but I think we're going to have the internet in heaven. I don't know that for sure. If you disagree, that's fine. But that would seem to be one of the glories of mankind carried into this new place where we live. Used for good. It's a bit of speculation there, I reckon. I don't really know all of how we're going to work in heaven. It's one of those things that's not really very clear. But when he says, and they shall reign forever, we're doing something. We're not just singing. We're not just sitting around and floating on a cloud. We are bodies in a world reigning, doing something constructive, using the minds the bodies that we have. Continuity between the old and the new in the area of activity. And lastly, very briefly, there's continuity in purpose between the old and the new. Well, we're not singing in a praise choir, we are praising forever and ever and ever. The purpose of life here now is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The purpose of life then there is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we'll see far more of God then we won't struggle with the limitations we have now. We won't struggle with the sin nature. There is no more curse then. To think about this. He's displayed in everything there. Perfectly. In all of the things that are created, we see the glory of God. In all the things that we say to one another, we see the glory of God. In our very presence there, we see the glory of God. Because you were saved, and I was saved by God's grace. Everything speaks of the glory of God. And with nothing present to distract us and get us focused on other things that aren't the glory of God, it's going to be front and center for us all the time. Praise will run out of us, sometimes in our words, sometimes in just what we make. It'll be a praise to Him. Sometimes in how we interact with other people. God is everywhere. He shines into our hearts. He's what warms us and moves us and gives us impressions and ideas. Who inhabits our speech and our activities. Truly is in all and all. The purpose of people in heaven to see and to delight in, to glorify God. It's not just a praise chorus. It's all of life, like is supposed to be the case right now. 
we talk about how we don't just limit worship to the 20 minutes that we do when we're singing, but that all of life is worship. That's what life will be like then. All of it, worship. Very naturally satisfying our souls. That's what he intended when he made people. He intended, Genesis 1 and 2, that he had a physical creation filled with worshipers, That's what he gets at the end, a physical creation filled with worshipers who worship even more fully because they see even more of him. Christ, the head over all. See the face of God and the Lamb. Let me pray. Lord, I think that As I talk about these things, sometimes they're hard for me to imagine. But I need to imagine them more and more. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would give them holy imaginations. Governed by the Scripture as far as the Scripture speaks. Careful when we step into places on which the Bible is silent. But thinking. Trying to see trying to imagine what will it be like to see you and to walk with you? To live in a place free from the curse. God, by grace I pray, open our eyes and let us see that. Thank you, Lord, for preparing a place for us. Thank you for promising to come back and take us to it, to be with you where you are to see you and enjoy you forever. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.